Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your host, Joe Campanelli, and I'm very, very excited because this is actually going to be the last episode that I tape for In The Drink. We've actually pre-recorded one other with the lovely people of Gut Ogao Wines um, in the Bergenland in Austria. They're in here for... Uh, Raw Wine Fair, and uh, we taped that on Monday, but that'll air next Wednesday. And so this is actually going to be the last episode that we tape uh, for the foreseeable future. I, I think that we'll be back next year. Um, but for those of you who know me, who've been listening, I am in the process of opening up a new restaurant in the former Franny space in Brooklyn. It's called Fausto. It will be a wine destination. There'll be all sorts of great wines there. Um, Italian-inspired food cooked in the wood fire oven pastas made in-house using local grains. Uh, it's going to be awesome. I hope to see you there. But that's going to keep me pretty busy for the next uh, few months, hopefully at least. And um, with that, I'm taking a little break from In the Drink. I love In the Drink, and uh, I look forward to it every week. But I'm also excited that we're going out on a high note. We have a, a friend of mine um, in the studio today. She has done something very, very brave, and that is she has um, started a print publication, a print magazine. It is an art and food and wine magazine and uh, uh, basically deals with all sorts of delicious uh, things to eat and look at and drink. Um, It's called Tear, and we have Rachel Signer, journalist, in the studio. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the first issue of Tear. Thank you, and thanks for having me on the show. It's an honor to be here, especially on your last show. It's really exciting. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm excited that we're, we're going out uh, in this way, at least, at least for this year. Next year, we, we might be back. I really hope that, uh, that, we can, uh, that my schedule allows us to arrange it uh, uh, to be back as soon as possible. But tell us about the inception of Terror. It seems like a, a crazy thing these days to decide to create a uh, a print publication i'm holding it in my hands right now that's something you can't do with the website uh and it is beautiful um and uh i'm, I'm glad that this exists i'm really glad that you did it and but what what made you decide to do this yeah well the key is kind of what you just said that you're holding it in your hands actually um but that there's sort of a funny roundabout story um which really the inception was that i um, drove through the Loire Valley for one week, um, about a year and a half ago, and I found so many things that I wanted to write about. I was like really, really overwhelmed, and I felt like these were really important stories for people that care about wine and, and, and food also, and um, just couldn't find a home for a lot of these stories, and I was growing 
because Quite. you were a freelance writer at that already time, sure. and you were trying to you're like all right i really want to tell a story but who sh- who would i pitch this to who would who would publish it and you couldn't figure out is that right yeah and, and i was like am i not convincing people enough or, or really what is it and um you know i think that uh the the world of um, you know artisanal wine or natural wine or wine that's sort of outside of the mainstream has grown so quickly that the media has been not quite catching up in a lot of cases um, and this really stayed on my mind like all of these uh, producers that I thought were doing kind of radical things and I just wanted to write about them um, so I was back in New York and I was hanging out a lot at uh, a wine bar called Wild Air. I assume many people listening are familiar with it. And uh, I love going there and it's so relaxed and they serve a lot of the wines I love and the food is great. And the general manager, um, this woman, Erica Da Silva, was um, always so welcoming and she would pour me a little pet nat and we would chat. And then um, through various Instagram connections I found her artwork and it was like astounding to me um I loved it from first sight she does uh gouache paintings it's sort of in between oil and acrylic um so her artwork is what you see on the cover and it's throughout the magazine as well so one day I came in she was sitting me down at a table with some friends and I just blurted out I'm obsessed with your artwork and we have to collaborate (laughs) and she's quite modest and so she said okay that's very nice and and I followed up and we um, did something for a website I was writing for and I really liked working with her and so I you know we had a couple coffees and we were like we've got to do something bigger like something really like lasting and I you know there's potential here and then um, we brought in a photographer um, Katie June Burton and Katie was also kind of in this circle in a lot of ways Um, she was freelancing for some really amazing publications and clients and we just really liked her energy. And then, um, the three of us took off together really with the idea that, um, something about artisanal wines should also be really, um, celebrating makers, small, you know, artists and and artists and photographers around the world, um, who are working by hand. So there's actually uh, basically zero graphics in the entire publication. And um, we won't be putting any of the content online. If there is a blog at some point, it'll have separate content entirely, stuff that is not you know belonging inside the magazine. Um, but we wanted... I, I, I've been writing for websites for a long time. I write for print publications as well. But when you're writing for a website, everything feels like it moves very, very quickly... Um, the article goes up and it's just suddenly out there in the world and um, that's totally fine but it it really changes the kind of coverage that you do there's you know wine writers end up doing a lot of like listicles you know five wines to Mm -hmm. drink at Thanksgiving and we really wanted this to be more about long-form journalism yeah and I find personally that when I read an article online it is uh, distracting a little bit because especially if it's a long article because I'm like well my email is just one click away and especially if you leave it up and you see that there's one or two or three yeah. emails that came in it's hard to just like 
sit into it and relax and enjoy and it. And how long can you look at your phone without either a text message or some kind of other notification coming in and your impulse is just like, what is that? Is that about work? Is that someone I should be responding to? And you forget whatever you were reading. Yeah, so I found that in, you know, in reading Tear and uh, it, it's just been really relaxing and really nice. It's like a, a lovely way to just like sink into really wonderful journalism. That's the best compliment ever. <laughs> oh, I'm glad <laughs> to hear so that. so nice. So I know when I was describing Describing it, and maybe maybe slightly incorrectly, I, I mentioned the art, and the, there's also some food and some non-wine things, sure. but it's predominantly a wine magazine, right? Is that yes. accurate? Well, the no? reason we called it Terre and not Vin, <laughs> um, which would be wine, is that, um, yeah, this is not only about wine, so you could see it as a magazine for people who love wine or who love natural wines or who love interesting offbeat wines, um, but... I don't think anybody wants to only read about wine because wine goes with food. And also, if you're the sort of person that loves reading about weird grape varieties in Italy, you might also enjoy reading about the history of Perigord walnuts, which is a beautiful feature we have um, in this magazine. So um, spirits, yeah, as well, same, same exact situation. We, we want to cover all of these things. Um, and in future issues, I'd also really like to cover... Um, the terroir of tobacco, uh, coffee, chocolate, um, marijuana. These are all things that um, we consume all the time that have terroir. And there's stories there. So That's very interesting. I mean, and I guess when they're, when they're done well, they should have terroir, right? It's when, uh, um, when they're not. That, what, how do you figure out what that criteria is for something that you, do, that you would want to include, whether it's wine or, or food-wise? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I have like a set list of criteria, but... Um, and to be clear, yeah. so you're the editor, but you're also a contributor in this, right? I wrote one feature, yeah, yes, one feature, yeah. exactly, which was guest edited by Alice Faring. Very nice. So um, I guess for me, it's very important also to start off that the writer is extremely passionate and that the writer has like actual knowledge about it. Mm -hmm. um, so we wouldn't take something where a writer just like does phone interviews to write the story, it would have to be about um, in the field research, generally speaking. Um, although, again, none of these are, you know, uh, you know, we if if we have a feature, for example, where Jameson Fink interviewed the founder of Polka Pants, um, really no connection to terroir at at all. But um, that sort of attracted that appealed to us because Jameson um, was very passionate about the subject. Um, we didn't feel it had been covered before, and also it's um, a, we're a women-run publication, and this is a story about a woman starting a company for female chefs. So there are outliers, is my point. But um, yeah, I guess we um, don't have sort of criteria, but it, you know when it feels right. Like if it feels right, you know that it belongs. Is, is sort of something. But um, the idea is that we're we're exposed to a lot of wines in the shops that we go to or the restaurants that we go to. And there's a lot of ingredients at the restaurants that we love. And we don't really actually know how they're made or where they're coming from. Like, you know, charcuterie would be a great example, like which you might be encountering with your restaurant. Like the production of charcuterie is fascinating. And there's a lot of terroir in terms of like where the animals are from and what they eat. And that kind of thing would be great to cover in terror. Yeah how the sausage is made. Literally. <laughs> well, since you brought it up, um, what does it mean for you to be a woman started, founded, owned, run company? Um, 
go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we will be talking about this forever and never really know the answer, but we do know that it's important. It feels important to us, and um, it, it feels great. Um, I have had one male editor after another, generally speaking, um, not 100%, but I, I think we all can agree that the media world is still fairly dominated at the higher echelons um, by men. And um, we just really love the fact that we are working together and that we're three women, and we're really proud of it. Um, you know, it's, it's not about identity politics, but we do feel that it's something really original. And it's about having another voice that's not as represented. Yeah, yeah. I think so. And we also, we also don't quite have the vocabulary for this, but I think we feel that our, our aesthetic is somewhat uh, feminine. A lot of our artists are, are female artists. Um, and yeah, again, it's hard to sort of, it's like saying a wine is feminine. Uh, some people have an issue with that, and I totally get it. But at the same time, that's what we found ourselves kind of saying, and we like that, and we're very like proud of that and very into that, and so we're just kind of going with it. <laughs> well, I don't know what it says about me, but I, I uh, uh, relate in, to the, your aesthetic, and uh, maybe, maybe that's, right. maybe, I don't know. Right. Well, it's interesting, or, because yeah, we feel I like, like we have a feminine aesthetic, but it's, it's, it's an attractive magazine, mm -hmm. and we want it to appeal to everybody. You know, it's by no means like a magazine for women. It's just, it's for everybody. <laughs> okay, so you're doing something uh, unique in the media world that, uh, or the publishing world, that you're, that you're uh, female, you know, owned, operated, edited, but also that it's independent. Like, there's, I, I don't know of too many independent um, wine magazines. I'm sure you're much more well-versed uh, than I am in, in that. But uh, what, is that, what does that mean for you? I mean, it must be extremely challenging to start this from scratch, go find someone who's going to print them for you, and then be involved in the sales and, you know, all throughout the process. Yeah, it's been so amazing to start from scratch and to just make all of the decisions ourselves. And um, we've learned so much. And I think um, we all sort of just like found ourselves kind of um, moving into these roles as, as things unfolded because nobody, you know, told us what to do. Um, you know, we didn't really, uh, we didn't really have any like outside advisor. We just talked to each other a lot and did a lot of research. Um, and for example, um, the way we found our layout designer um, was that I was at a big wine fair in France called La Dive. And I was just chatting with someone and this guy came up to me and he, he said, hey, I follow you on Instagram. Why don't you follow me back? It was such an odd thing to say, and I, and I just—it really like bug, <laughs> bugged him. He's like, I, "It must mean he really thought you were awesome." I don't know. <laughs> he just really wanted me to follow him because he takes like uh, cool photos of he takes portraits of winemakers and wine drinkers. And I pulled out my phone and just followed him back. I was like, "Okay, okay, no problem." And then uh, a couple weeks later, like uh, I posted on Instagram, we were looking for a layout designer, and he contacted me, and he was like, "I do that." So good thing I, you know, followed him back, I guess, because uh, he ended up doing the, the layout design. Um, so that was a sort of funny kind of It's amazing, actually, how much of Instagram, you know, you found the, your, the art through Instagram, your layout design. I mean, what, what else has been really surprising for you throughout this process? Like when, did, when did you guys get start, started and, uh, uh, and then throughout the process, what were you yeah. like, wow, I didn't expect it to go in that way? 
Um, well, um, yeah, I mean, Erica and Katie can speak more about the, the art and the photo. Um, Erica the, is the art director, and she, she did contact quite a few people through Instagram. I, I think we were surprised how many sort of like, quote unquote, big deal artists were happy to work for us, maybe, um, because we're brand new. We didn't even have anything to show them. And these are people, some of them who do really cool commissions and get and have like, you know, 30K Instagram followers. And they were like, yes, absolutely. That sounds great. And I don't know, maybe it was that we're a women run publication um, or who knows. But um, we were pleasantly surprised. Um, nobody was too cool for us. Like nobody was like, mm, I'm busy. Um, and so that was nice. <laughs> um, but um I, I, I learned a lot just by, like, working with writers. Um, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to be an editor. I've edited fiction before, but that's different because that just comes to you. But um, editing journalism is, is really, really hard and frustrating, um, and I, I learned a lot from it. <laughs> I, I like doing it. It was just um, some, sometimes it was... Um, uh, hard to it, we went through a lot of drafts what was, what was hard about is it hard to you know as a writer yourself not to impose your own voice onto another writer yes. I imagine that's probably hard yes it was hard and also and you know these are all based on field research so um, you can't just say like go make a phone call and then insert it into the piece because it has to really be um, and also I I had to really um, kind of help the writers understand that this magazine should really transport people to the places that we're writing about. That's the goal, anyway. To the tear. Uh, <laughs> on, the, on that note, we're going to take just a quick break. We'll be back with uh, Rachel Signer of Tear Magazine. Issue one just came out right after this. Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In The Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels, to lower barrel entry proof before heat cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost be damned, taste is everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food and Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com. Or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right, we're back with Rachel Signer of Terror Magazine. Issue one just came out. It is at your local wine store if you live near a really cool wine store that, that stocks Terror. Where can where can our listeners find uh, Terror, actually? Yeah, so, well, that's also maybe a good liaison back to your question about being an indie mag. Um, so from the beginning, when we decided to do a Kickstarter, um, I was like, 
how are we going to, how are we going to do this? Cause you can't just do $25 donations and kind of make enough money to sell a magazine. So we, um, reached out to, uh, wine shops that we know of or admire, um, around the country. We started with the U S, um, and expanded in our second stage of sales to international. Mm-hmm. Um, and the response was great. People were um, really happy to support the Kickstarter by pre-purchasing Tear. So um, right now, around the country, um, various wine shops are getting their shipments of Tear. Um, and it's all on our website. So TearMag, TearMag.com lists the stockists. Um, it's, it's also not just wine shops. We have like a few culinary bookstore kind of places, one or two concept shops. Um, There's a really cool magazine store in LA called uh, Now Serving um, that carries tear. So, and and, um, Spoonbill in Sugartown, my favorite bookstore in Brooklyn, has picked it up. I almost cried. (laughs) Um, I love it. So if you guys see it uh, around, you should definitely pick it up because I also know that uh, there's not a a huge amount that were printed. How many were in the first? Yeah. Run? Yeah. So we printed 1500. Um, we had originally planned to print a thousand. That's like what we budgeted for. And then we realized really quickly that there was a little bit more demand. So we printed 1500. Um, yeah, we would have loved to have printed even more. Um, but for issue two, we'll definitely be able to okay. increase it. And you wouldn't do a second printing of the first issue that if uh, it's because from what I've heard, mm-hmm. um, people are really excited about it. I know that you had a, a successful couple of days at, mm-hmm. at Raw. Um, yeah. People have to wait for issue two to come out, right? For the next. That's what we're thinking at the okay. moment. Um, we have worked really, really hard over the past um, six months. And I think what we would like to do is let issue one kind of be out in the world. And um, we'd love to just kind of hear feedback, hear feedback mm. from our stockists, from our readers, and kind of um, get to know the response a little bit. And I think we're going to take like a proper vacation, like not talk to each other and like not answer emails about tear for like a couple of weeks or a month and then sort of jump back in um, in January to planning issue two to come out in May. Hopefully. All right. Sounds like you uh, deserve it. <laughs> it's a lot of work to do this. Um, a lot of intercontinental communication, um, a lot of emails, a lot of like very long creative sessions and things like that. How was your experience at Raw? It seems like that would be a good venue for me, like thinking of it outside, but why was that for you a, a good venue for, uh, for this? It was great. Um, we, when we, you know, when the three of us kind of sat down and we were like, we're going to make a magazine, we pictured it being um, available in places where you would be buying like natural wines basically because, or tasting them because you can only learn so much from whoever is selling you the wine or whoever is pouring it for you. And so, um, and if you have more questions, right, like where do you go? So the magazine is meant to be something to get you a little bit more kind of intrigued by the world of, of wine and food, um, artisanal wine and artisanal food. So um, Raw was a wonderful setting and we're really appreciative of Isabel Legeron, um giving us a, a great space um, inside the the tasting. Um, so it was just this. Uh, it was just two days ago, mm-hmm. raw in Brooklyn, um, and everyone was coming up to us and asking questions. Um, 
Also, a lot of our early supporters were there. People came from around the country who own wine shops and bars. So I got to like shake their hands and meet them in person, which for us was just like amazing to connect with these people who supported our project from the beginning. Um, and so I know for Isabel uh, and for, for wines to be able to be entered into raw, like, it doesn't only necessarily have to be um, grown completely organically or biodynamically, but uh, for her, the amount of sulfur that's added is something that's really like uh, a sticking point. Right? She has like a maximum sulfur amount regardless of the style of, of yeah. the wine. Um, for, do, in your definition of natural wine, does does low sulfur have to be like part of that? Um, or because uh, I, I remember mm-hmm. I was I think that even like Nicolas Jolie couldn't get his wines into yeah. raw because because uh, he had a little bit too much sulfur in there. Yeah, I think she uh, limits it at 65 parts per million, mm-hmm. but I would have to check. And that's also what she told me like uh, last year. So I don't know if the amount has changed. Um, um, well, I don't <clears throat> know if it's my role to define anything for anyone. Um, and the term natural wine is definitely problematic. Um, that said, it does exist for a reason to sort of um, demonstrate that these are not, you know, corporate wines or these are not mass produced wines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, natural, someone said to me the other day, natural made them think of like an Annie's mac and cheese box. <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah, I get that. I get that. But I just don't know if we have like a qu- living oh, yeah, wines, so- living wines is kind of nice. Um, so yeah, I don't, you know, I'm definitely not here to, uh, be dogmatic and the magazine definitely is not either. Um, I, I like drinking wines made with like zero sulfur. I think it's a really incredible feat of, uh, winemaking because it's not easy to do, especially in certain climates. Um, I do think it's really, really important to, um, uh, support people that are farming organically. Um, there's some, pretty serious repercussions of like using heavy chemicals um, in agriculture or in vineyards, um, including like the safety of the workers um, and, you know, and it has a serious effect on the earth. I had an interesting experience um, in Champaign um, earlier this fall visiting. uh, Which is a place that in the past was notoriously, um, I I don't want to say raping the planet, but like they were like really not kind to the soil there. Well, the amazing thing about Champagne is that until 90, like three or four, it was literally the um, dumping ground for Paris's trash. They literally had like a landfill in somewhere in the Valley de la Marne. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) That's crazy. And that is like the... (laughs) <laughs> they are just marketing pros. I mean, to be able Very to like sell like something that's so you know luxury. Yeah. But now there's a bunch of cool mm-hmm. um, uh, champagne producers who mm-hmm. are being much more reverential towards the planet and, yeah. and their growing methods. Yeah, um, I visited two of the, the 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 ones that I think are really the loudest voices maybe at the moment. Um, one was Vincent Laval, whose uh, domain Georges Laval, whose family has been. Um, some of the vineyards have never been sprayed. You know, they've they've been practicing biodynamics um, for decades and uh, before they got certified. And um, he he has very strong opinions, and he thinks that if you don't have a certification, it doesn't count because you you could be spraying and just not telling you anyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true, maybe. 
Um, and then I visited uh, Bertrand Vautereau of uh, Vouet and Sorbet. So they both did the same thing. They have vineyards next to theirs that are not farmed organically. And we did like a soil comparison. And the smell of the organically or biodynamically farmed soils is so much more intense and rich and mushroomy. And it's like got this incredible texture compared to the conventional one, just, you know, really basically right next door. And also um, the roots um, of a biodynamic vineyard, they are really, really nice and long. Um, they go down where the much more interesting matter is. And so that's that's going to affect the, the grapes, obviously. Whereas um, in the conventional vineyard, the, the roots are a lot shorter um, because they don't need to go any further because there's mm -hmm. fertilizer and stuff at the top. And so they just stay up there. Yeah, I've seen images of, I'm sure you've seen this as well, where... Um, you know, uh, vineyards that are that have that are either like sprayed with fertilizer or um, irrigation too, right? The roots don't feel like the need to go deep to find the yeah. minerals and and water, and so they just stay yeah. up there, and it's just a much less strong. Yeah, it's like a coddled. In um, Cote Roti, uh, there's a place where, in, in the Northern Rhone, there's a place mm -hmm. where um, Chaputier has their parcel right next to somebody else, I uh, won't name, who um, doesn't farm organically. And Chaputier, actually, this particular parcel is farmed biodynamically. And it's it's almost hilarious because the Chaputier um, vineyard, and this is all like, you know, the terraced hill of Cote Roti, it's very dramatic, is just verdant and there's like wildflowers growing, you know, it just looks beautiful. And then next to it, it's, it looks barren. <laughs> it's How does the neighbor not be like, it seems like, mm -hmm. I mean, Chaputier seems to be doing pretty well in general. Yeah. And like their stuff looks better than mine. Maybe. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I heard a story about, uh, Soldera, um, complaining about his neighbors pissing on his vineyard because they were, <laughs> they were spraying. Um, that's funny. So, so now I, I know we were, we were talking about this before, uh, before the show, but so I won't pretend to not know, you know, but <laughs> to not know your answer, but, um, tell us about your idea of, of moving to, uh, to Paris. Like you've, you've mm -hmm. left the States, you live in Paris. Um, why, why have you done that? It sounds like you get to visit a lot of producers. Yeah. Well, um, you know, obviously the, the wine regions in New York are, are fantastic. Um, but, um, I mean, for me, it just seems way more practical to be, um, based in Europe in order to cover, to cover wine. And, um, you know, despite the fact that I'm editing a magazine, I still have a lot to learn, like really, really. Um, and, uh, it's it's really important for me to be able to easily go to wine growing regions, and um, <clears throat> I found that my experience in New York um, covering covering wine, I had I felt like I had two major handicaps. Um, one was that I had to rely on invitations from wine associations to to visit Europe. Um, or even to visit Oregon and California. And, and um, a lot of times, like, the cool producers... Are like not on those Angelino Malay, even they're like, they're, the Veneto Association... Of, well, he's outside the Appalachian. Yeah, like, they're not going to send you there and you can De go Definitely visit not. It, you know? No, they're, they're literally not allowed to <laughs> because it's, like, EU funding and, you know, Angelino Malay is not part of the Appalachian. Um, so yeah, they're, you're, you're not allowed to visit. And this was extremely frustrating for me, mm -hmm. um, again and again. 
And in cases where, I'll never forget when I, um, I remember I was on a trip in the Languedoc and I really wanted to visit um, this producer, Benjamin Taillandier. Um, he makes simple, um, interesting wines in Minervois. And I just, you know, I'd had them so many times. I'd sold them when I worked in retail before. And I just thought it'd be really great to visit him. And he is part of the AOC, Minervois. And so we went and the representative from the Languedoc Appellation was like saying really rude things about his winery. And, you know, like they don't understand that, like we don't want to just go to chateaus and be impressed by how fancy things are. We want to talk to farmers like I do. <laughs> and um, I was really like taken aback by how rude she was. And anyway, I, I, I really wanted a way to be a wine journalist without relying on um, these associations, which a lot of them are great. I've had some really great experiences also, and um, no one should complain about being you know, flown to Europe and so on. It's just not so productive. And um, there's something more pure about your approach, too, right now, from an outsider. Mm. Like, you're not going to places because you have a cool press mm. trip there and... Um, you know, you're not writing about them because you feel like you need to mm-hmm. to pay for the press trip in some sort of unofficial way. Like you're you're so close, you can just hop on a train and or yeah. or a short flight and get to places yeah. that you want to go to. Yeah, and you know, and I don't imply that um, people who accept press trips are you know compromised in any way. But there, yeah, there are a lot of like pressures to do that. Um, and also for me in New York, I just found that I was limited in other ways um, by the market. I was limited by, you know, what sommeliers were recommending or um, which importer brings in this wine and, you know, when was the last time I hung out with this importer and things like that. And it's, it was really like shaping my view and that, I, you know, that shouldn't really be how you think about wines. It should be about the, the growers, in my opinion. For example, I have a feature in here about a producer named Julien Guillot, and uh, it's the one that I chose to write because I was kind of like hanging out in Paris, and his wines are everywhere in Paris, and he's like really beloved in the restaurant scene, and they're like, I remember I had a 2012 Cuvée Auguste at Bervolet, and I was like, this is amazing. Why have I never had this this, this wine? He's in the Macon. Um, and then I got to visit him on a trip, and I was like astounded by the wines, but we didn't have time to see the vineyard, and... I kept thinking about him. Um, his vineyard is the oldest in Burgundy. It planted in 910 by monks, and it's never been chemically treated. Um, and he's making these incredible wines from the oldest vineyard in Burgundy. It might be the oldest organic vineyard in France. Um, and he's also like an incredible person. So I kept thinking about these wines. And the reason they're not really available in New York is that they've been imported directly to Chamber Street. Um, so... I, I finally decided to write the story, and um, actually my layout designer, Holger, who I, the same one that came up to me at La Dive, he took a train to Paris. We rented a car, because um, he's a photographer as well, and then we drove down to Burgundy right when harvest was starting, starting and they handed me secateurs, and I picked the vineyard of the Cuvée Auguste wine that I had had. Like, I mean, it was. This is why I wanted to be in Europe to be able to do this. Um, it's there's no way I could have just hopped on a plane from New York and you know made it to France and and done that. It's too expensive. I, you know, all the the trouble of airports. Um, 
And so now his wines are going to be available because Cummy Riviere will be um, importing them oh, nice. to U.S. So the the serendipities are kind of amazing, actually. That's incredible. And then that's the article uh, right in the middle of the magazine that, that you wrote. And it's just beautiful photography. And, and Yeah, Holger did a great job. And Alice edited this one. Yeah, um, she did a great job, too. I was really glad she was available to work on it. <laughs> That's amazing. I want. I've never had these wines. I really want to try them. Oh, they're beautiful. They're incredible. Um, and he makes a, a lot of. He makes Chardonnay and Gamay and Pinot Noir. And then the Cuvée 910 is the the flagship wine. And it's um, so he tries to make it um, using the three grapes: Chardonnay, mm-hmm. Pinot Noir, and Gamay, because that's what the monks would have would have made the wine with. Um, so he's making this like ancient blend. Uh, yeah, and he's a genius winemaker. It's really beautiful. That's incredible. That's incredible. So when is issue two coming out? In May. In May. Yeah, that's okay. the goal. Yeah. And do you have any, is there anything that you've learned from issue one that you want, that you're going to apply to issue two or you're, you're still waiting to hear back, um, feedback from people as they, as they get it in? Yeah, we're definitely still processing. It's, it's all happening so quickly. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's just getting out there and, um, I'm really like eager to hear what people think. Um, so, um, yeah, we would love feedback. Um, the, the, there's a, an email address listed on the website, teramag at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear also from, you know, like our, our sellers, like our stockists, mm-hmm. kind of what they think might be cool. Um, and that's another way I'd like to do things differently. Like a lot of journalism is driven by the publicists that represent um, whether it be wineries or regional boards or so on. And that's totally fine. But, um, you know, the, the, the small growers and small producers don't have marketing. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that I think are probably worth sharing their stories at the moment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, you, you you have some great feedback for me in just that. It's kind of like the, the help, non-helpful feedback from the moms like i love it it's awesome just keep doing what you're doing (laughs) well i love that you said it was relaxing like that makes me so happy that um it's a really stressful time in the world and if if we can just Mm -hmm. give people something to to read that um like is interesting and relaxing and kind of really highlights the humanity of, of all of these producers. Um, then That's true, because on, when I read on my computer, not only am I distracted by yeah. mm-hmm. uh, emails, but I'm also frequently distracted by like newyorktimes.com and refreshing it to see if like mm-hmm. Trump and all of his cronies have been arrested yet. Like, yeah, I yet. wouldn't hold your breath. Not yet. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> All right, Rachel, congratulations again. Thank you for being my last episode of 2017. Oh, my God, thank you. (laughs) It's been just such a blast. I want to thank all of you guys for listening. Uh, Dave Tattashore, who puts this episode together every week and uh, who just does amazing things here at Heritage Radio Network. Uh, Thanks to Michter's, my sponsor. You guys have been awesome. I really appreciate your support over the years. And, um, I, you know what, if you're looking for other things to do when you're not, uh, uh, listening to in the drink now for the next few months, you can look at the, you can listen to the back episodes. You're welcome to do that. They're all listed on heritageradionetwork.org. Or you can listen to other there are other uh, shows on Heritage. There's lots of great shows. Um, or come visit me at Fausto. We're hoping to open in the middle, beginning of December, somewhere around there. So come visit me at Fausto. Um, have a great winter, everyone. 
Thanks again so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.